And I think something interesting, just as I think about, as you're saying there, a player agency, a point to talk about actually is, is that one of the differences we could probably argue between a casual or competitive player is both of those types of players actually really like player agency. They like the ability to do what they want to do. The difference is, is that the competitive player is thinking, I want the player agency to be able to control the outcome of this game win-loss. The casual player is thinking, I want the agency in this game to do something I think is really awesome and really cool. In some ways, this was a dream episode for me. I got three uh, what I consider top thinkers in the gaming industry, two of them being actual game designers. And I sat them down and I brought up an, an old adage, which is, is there a difference between a competitive game and a casual game? And if so, what is that difference? And, and why does that definition seem so important? We even go a little bit further and say, is there such a thing as a competitive gamer versus a casual gamer? Because that's often where we see a lot of conflict and discussions online. We break down why we think those two terms and those two ideas tend to clash. We talk about um, how gaming companies handle the concept and whether they're creating a game that they think is for casual or competitive gamers. Stick around to the end because we talk about whether player rankings and model tiers hurt a game or not. And last but not least, each of my guests give us a neat horror story about uh, a bad gaming experience related to competitive versus casual gaming. Enjoy! Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. Now, you hear this all the time. Uh, this game is only for competitive play or, oh, yeah, it's a, the game's fine. It's good for casual gamers and so on and so forth. Um, there seems to be a belief that there's kind of two types of games and two types of gamers, competitive games and competitive and casual games. Um, I've talked a little bit about it on previous episodes, but I really wanted to explore it a lot more. So today we have three people that know a lot about games and game design, and the four of us are going to try to explore this idea. We're going to try to define what is casual versus competitive, and I want to talk about how sometimes there's friction between both of them. So my first guest is James Doxey. He's a familiar voice to anyone who's ever listened to this podcast. Uh, he's been on several episodes doing Malifaux deep dives and expert roundtables. He's one of the people that I talk about when I mention gamers I trust. Um, quite frankly, if I found out James likes a game, like recently uh, you heard him on the God Tier episode, I know it's a good game to check out. So James, welcome back to the third floor. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So since last we talked, you were knee deep into uh, God Tier. Um, uh, is it still something that uh, you're fooling around with? Oh, absolutely. Still loving God Tier. Um, and I've also... With lockdown in the UK, I've also painted a 40k army, which I know is heresy on here, but uh, um, uh, your mic, your mic's well. broken, James. It said you said it sounded like you said you were painting up a 40k <laughs> army. <laughs> so, so apparently, what COVID has done is make you hate money. Yes, no, that's clearly <laughs> it. Well, what it is, I'm, I'm going to become a father in February uh, for the first time. So I'm just spending all of my money now before anyone else. <laughs> <Right. happens. laughs> yeah, when the, when the little one arrives, you'd be amazing uh, what impact it has on your hobby budget. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, time as well, I imagine. <laughs> that's it. Oh, oh, that's, that's exciting, around. James. Uh, no, good, yeah. good. 
that's very exciting. Uh, so which 40k army? Everybody's going to want to know. Uh, I, I decided Craft Worlds, so I've been playing a bit of Elder. Um, I think I, w- I think that would have been my guess. So that's great. <laughs> so my second guess, uh, you may know him from the episode about Drowned Earth, uh, that we did on the Drowned Earth miniature game. James Baldwin is the man behind the fun and dynamic and innovative system. Recently closed out yet another successful Kickstarter with a cooperative mini game, Uleya Chronicle. So James, welcome back to the third floor. Hello, thank you. So it's my understanding that once you close the Kickstarter, there's really not much more for you to do, right? So things have been pretty low key lately. No, no I'm, I'm talking to you from a beach in the bar, in Barbados. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the minions are all doing all the, you know, whatever it is that they need to do. Uh, by minions, of course. I mean, there aren't any actual minions. Uh, <laughs> it's it's all me. I sweep the floor around here as well as the game design and reorganizing everything. But uh, yeah, no, good to be back. Thank you. Um, been busy yeah so i mean uh, have you had any chance to play some games is there uh, any hobbying happening at your side it's been all business it's mostly well we did a lot of play testing obviously and uh so mostly personally um i have an rpg night on a monday um we're currently we're playing in the infinity universe but we didn't like the infinity rules so we're playing the coriolis rule set um although actually we're kind of just making it up as we go along if i'm honest uh, <laughs> um and uh from um with my other half she's she's a board gamer so we've been we've been getting through some gloomhaven uh we've nice. been playing some uh, uh some pandemic uh legacy we've just just the third one has just landed so we're looking covetously at that um so yeah bit of gaming going on not as much as i'd like <laughs> i understand that all too well so my last guest is jamie perkins and he also did an insider insight episode here uh you know him from his work on guild ball devil may cry and god tier so jamie welcome back to the third floor Hi, Craig. Thanks for having me on again. It's good to have you, man. Uh, Jamie, we got so much good um, feedback on your episode. Um, uh, people, it's funny when I had, I've done, you know, recorded episodes later after talking to, and invariably, you know, someone goes, yeah, you remember on the Perkins episode when he said this? So um, I appreciate you coming back. Um, what have you been up to, my friend? Um, well, there's kind of a running theme going for everyone, I guess, with how we're dealing with lockdown differently. So I've uh, I've been trying to get back into playing Star Wars Armada again in my personal time. Um, but the problem is just not being able to get face-to-face games. So I'm going to be looking into probably the Tabletopia um, tabletop online to play that. And um, other than that, professionally, I, I've been overseeing, as you mentioned, the release of Devil May Cry recently. Uh, and I'm also the lead developer on Monster Hunter. So uh, I've got quite, oh, a lot nice. to do, quite a lot to do during the day in very exciting times. Yeah, very much so. You guys, um, you guys have been busy over there. Um, the uh, Bard Sung right now, while we're recording this, the Bard Sung Kickstarter is out there and doing well. Um, I was complimenting Jamie before we started recording that at uh, Steamforge's marketing was a little bit different and very clever uh, for Bard Sung. Um, and again, apparently we've they've got uh, some people that uh, spent a lot of time putting that together, and it showed uh, when it came out. So the idea behind these expert roundtable series is it allows me to get people on the show to talk in depth and explore aspects of tabletop gaming. So like I mentioned, we're going to really dig into this idea of competitive versus casual games, but we do have a small challenge. The challenge is is that I have James, James, and Jamie on the show. So for the sake of the listeners, as well as for my guests, we're going to be using surnames. So you'll hear me refer to them as Perkins, Doxy, and Baldwin, um, just to make things clear. So what we'll do is we're going to start the conversation really kind of defining what is the difference and what does competitive and casual mean. So we'll be right back. Thank you. 
Howdy friends, Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So in order to talk about one versus the other and, you know, what does it mean and why do we often see conflict between people that are labeled casual, either self-labeled or competitive, um, we got to really get an understanding of what the heck you know, these terms mean. Now, I've had this conversation several times, even before this episode started, um, and I'm amazed at uh, how it means different things to different people, which I think is part of the reason that it leads uh, to some confusion and conflict. So, uh, Doxy, we're going to start with you because really you were the um, the mastermind behind us having this episode. There was a conversation uh, that you and Perkins were having on Twitter, um, which uh, you then brought me into. And then uh, immediately I thought as this episode came together, I need to get Baldwin on. So for you, James, uh, sorry, Doxy, it's going to take me a little while getting used to that. For you, Doxy, um, what does it mean? If I tell you that a game is competitive, what does that mean to you? Um to me competitive would mean a tight set of rules it would mean um it would mean there was a focused on an organized play element um i think probably primarily it would probably mean low variance um and as someone that probably identifies as a competitive player um i would i would probably look at what i enjoy from a from a competitive experience which would be the process of optimization and sort of then, and then testing my skills against another opponent so i think that would probably be the and then back into the loop of optimizing preparing um and so on and so forth and i think that's that's probably how i would uh, i would be it so is it safe to say that you would consider god tier and malifaux competitive games absolutely um and i mean i'm also one of those people that understands that you can do most things competitively um I, i think provided there are two people involved there is some route to competition um and i think it's yeah, I think there's always that potential, and I think it's just the extent to which any activity is optimized towards it. So I'd be interested, Baldwin, when you hear uh, Doxy kind of lay that out, how, how big of a gap is there between what he said and what you think? Um, I think I agree with most things he said. I, I sort of I, I look at it in a in a slightly different way at times, and 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 in particular, I think that there's there's this idea that the two the two uh, different mindsets are incompatible, or that there's a, particular type of game um which is one or the other and i think those are all big gray areas but really i think that the, the way that i look at it um is you know we're used to this idea that uh competitive and casual are a spectrum uh, and you know we can we can use the analogy of politics where you have the left right spectrum but but perhaps if you're familiar with the the political compass a more useful way to look at it sometimes is is you know in the political example you've got the left and the right which is the sort of of uh, um, the 
um, you know, one axis, and then the up-down axis is libertarian and uh, and uh, authoritarian, I guess. And in our example, for me, so where am I coming from? I think competitive players get a bad rap quite a lot of the time. And I think that the reason is because we're not all talking about the same thing. So there's this, uh, the winner all costs player, uh, which is, you know, often demonized. Um, yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, so if you if you imagine you've got this uh, left, right, axis which is competitive and uh casual or uh, and and you change that to just saying how much is winning the defining characteristic of your play experience how much is that what you are trying to do not at all a little bit quite a lot or 100 percent. there's nothing wrong with being anywhere on that spectrum if you bring the other axis in and you could call that a lot of different things you could call it uh tabletop etiquette you could call it sportsmanship the way i like to think of it is that is that we should all as gamers enter into a kind of contract where effectively we take custodianship for our opponent's fun um, and so I think you can be 100% competitive and absolutely uh, your your entire focus is on winning, but you still take good care of your opponent and make sure that you're polite and courteous and do everything the right way. And in that sense, um, I think two people with very different reasons for playing can have a fantastic game. I, I, agree, I agree, Baldwin. It's funny because, um, and I can't remember where I heard this, and I feel bad because I'm going to quote this person, and I can't remember who it was. But they, they said um, something that's unique about tabletop gaming, and there was somebody who were, that was new to tabletop gaming, is the, is the shared responsibility for the game, which is somewhat unique to tabletop gaming. Um, and I never heard it kind of phrased that way, but it, it ties to what you just said, right? I'm responsible for my opponent having fun. And you want to talk about something I couldn't agree with more? I, I, mean, I mean, that's what it is. And and it is something that I don't think I realized till COVID mattered mattered to me. I didn't realize that it mattered to me until I couldn't get across the table from somebody with a friend and and create this shared experience of, of playing a game. Um, I'd be curious for you, Perkins. So James talks about winning and the desire to win and that being a factor um, and seeing a spectrum um, of, of, of really gamers between casual and competitive. How much does this and what Doxy talk about ring with you? I think it's, it's it's very accurate. Like you talk, you're effectively talking around the terms of the social contract, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think the statement you made about it being both players' responsibility again is hitting the nail on the head. Um, and it's really about like when I come to the table with somebody that I don't know. Uh, one, that's a really exciting experience for me because it's good to people you don't, you haven't met before. But also, there's a responsibility there that I feel of I need to get to know this player. I need to understand what's going on. I mean, I've experienced that from both a personal and professional level. Uh, but I feel that there's a lot of similarity between the two, and I feel like I act in the same way. Uh, if I I'm, if I'm when I'm playing uh, any kind of game that I want to play competitively back when, when I was playing Guild Ball for example and I'd be coming to a table against somebody that I've never met before my initial questions are hey what's your name what guild are you playing oh how much have you played before and I'm not necessarily asking them are you a highly skilled highly competitive player but I'm trying to ask questions that kind of teach me about the person because I want to make sure that I am changing the way in which I am playing the game to adapt to them and it would be the same when I played War Machine when I played Star Wars Armada it's the same thing have you played before have you ever played a tournament have you ever if I'm in a from 
playing in the gaming center? Like, have you played this game before at all? You're a new face. What can you tell me about it? Because I want to make sure that you have a good experience playing this game. It's absolutely important. And it's like, it's important not only just for the individual experience at the table there, but it's also important for everyone's contribution to cultivating their own community. We are all responsible for making sure that people enjoy the games they play with. So they continue to play those games. And so right. we all have more people to play with. One of the, one of the biggest problems with not doing so is that you can actually end up with fewer people to play a game with. And then, these games are all, you all require another human to play with, right? If no one's going to play yep. games with you or you don't have a community, you're in big trouble. So I think, yeah, well, I kind of drifted a little bit, but yes, everything you're talking about in terms of social contract, in terms of responsibility, in terms of access, all correct, agree with all of it. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's an enormous responsibility to come to the table and try to have fun with it yourself. Don't kind of stress yourself out about it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's important to, to be considerate of. Well, so I'd be curious, Perkins, do you do you think it's fair to say, well, that's a casual game or that's a competitive game? Do you think that 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 those are legitimate labeling of not gamers, but games? I I think yes. Um, but the thing is, is this is something that's going to be it, it's hard to draw an objective point from this because okay. you can have if you if we were a podcast full of people that really loved playing Warmer 40,000 organized play events. Right. If we, <laughs> if we could all come on this podcast, have the exact same conversation and all have the perspective that Warmer 40,000 is a really, really good competitive game. And that doesn't necessarily make them wrong because there are people there. There are elements of that that do that elements of that game and that community in particular does make it an appropriate competitive game number one there are a ton of people to play with so if you just go i'm running a tournament there's good you can have anywhere from like 32 6428 players turning up and you have an organized play event therefore it is a competitive game on right. in that sense so it does depend on how upon how you're looking at it but at the same time, kind of what Docs you were saying earlier about, I expect a game that's competitive to have clean rules, to have low variance. These things are all accurate as well, but I do think it's it's hard to draw objective conclusions from that question. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and James, you labeled, you know, you said, hey, these, uh, or I, I kind of put words in your mouth a little bit, but we said, you know, these are competitive games. I'd be curious, like, can you give me an example of casual games that you play or have played? So uh, I was just giving other James a moment to, to jump in and get the I, I, I'm not going to be good at this, by the way, no, guys. No, I'm not going to throw names. <laughs> Um, so I think, I mean, it's interesting because, because, you know, you, you can do anything competitively. And I, I, I'm just mindful. I, I come from, you know, come from a country where we will hurl a wheel of cheese down a hill and chase it, um, as a competition, right? Like, you know, there's that, you know, you can, you, you can, you can make, uh, you can make a competition of anything. I, I mean, I think probably the games that I've encountered that are the most casual, um, I suppose you would almost go with you would probably go with charades or pictionary, right? You would go with something okay. with something in that ilk where there is the construct is not you know the, the construct is set up um, in that way, but even that can be done competitively. Actually, I suppose um, something like Pandemic, something like Forbidden Island, something where the players are are, are competing against um against the game itself will probably be the, the closest example but i you know i think you can you can tailor an or tailor a game to an audience that is not the quote-unquote competitive player um, right. and, and I, I think some of that comes down to casual often defines itself as an absence right it defines itself in opposition to competitiveness um, which is i think often where i see 
they're going to, I'm a casual player breakdown. Um, and, and I would probably say, actually, it's less about targeting a casual player as it is targeting someone who defines their fun in a way that isn't their win rate or their opt- or the process of optimization and competing. It's finding what they find fun yeah. and, and, and targeting the game towards those experiences. And I think about the way Magic the Gathering defined it, the sort of three personas they were designing cards for about 20 years ago. They figured out, they, they wrote three personas, Timmy, Johnny, and Spike, and wrote cards for each of them. Um, right. And I think, I think it's that sort of, I think it's less about targeting at casual players, but targeting players who have fun in a different way to the way I would consider competitive. So Baldwin, I wonder, let's pretend that I got 100 Drowned Earth players uh, together and I took a survey and uh, I had them rate, um, they only have an A or B choice. What percentage do you think would label Drowned Earth a competitive game versus would label Drowned Earth a casual game? Um, I, I think it's probably 90% of people would say, I'm not sure they'd say casual, and actually I'm going to push back against casual uh, in, a, in, a, in a little while. But I think that they'd say it's a narrative-focused game rather than a competitive-focused game. Uh, and I think that's a fair distinction. Um, but I think, for, for, you know, for me... That when looking at other games, I think any game that has been designed um, with a tight rule set without, you know, sort of, I look at this really in terms of negative play experience. Um, a, game's, uh, a game with a rule set with a whole lot of holes in it is going to cause huge problems when a competitive, when two competitive players meet, or in particular when a competitive player meets a non-competitive player. Uh, a, a game that's been designed right and, and, and doesn't have those ambiguities, the two different player profiles can, can play quite happily, I think, because there are just less things to, uh, less edge cases to argue about, and also let, you know less loopholes to try and manipulate if, if somebody uh you know is that way inclined yeah and it um you know this ties into what you mentioned before which is that you know how important is winning um and that kind of spectrum and and uh you know where that falls now we, so we've kind of got an idea now a little bit about um really what the panel thinks about the games themselves and the label of the games but i want to get more into the gamers um and i'm going to offer uh the possibility that maybe it's not the games that should be labeled a competitive game or a casual game but really we're talking about gamers and their perspectives and often how they clash so we'll take a quick break and we're going to kind of iron that out we'll be right back if you're an athlete you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down after all a team is only as good as its weakest link so you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field that's why there's no vape in team when you vape you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. 
Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So as I listened to these three guys talk about, um, you know, competitive games and, you know, I specifically was asking him, do you consider this a casual game, a competitive game? What is a competitive game? We kept bringing up the players. Um, and I, and I postulate that it's possible that really the distinction is more a player distinction than a game distinction, a distinction. And it's the, the player that finds the games, right? Um, so you can have casual 40k players you can have competitive 40k players i'd be curious for you perkins do you consider yourself a competitive or a casual player if you had to pick yeah for me personally i'd I'd describe myself as a a reformed competitive player which is that i definitely in my earliest years of gaming started out as those when it all cost players that you hear about but then i had some quite bad experiences early on uh, and then learned like a, a huge level of respect for you know protecting the gaming experience for both players. Uh, and from that point onwards, I still wanted to play to win games, but I was approaching the table so much more differently and trying to make sure again that that, that experience for both players was protected. We're both having fun and both wanting to come back to the table again afterwards and talk about it. Um, just to speak as well in terms of how you, you say in terms of gamers can can find the game themselves because they want to find something that matches their personality. I also think there's an element of when companies put forward a particular game that they're almost kind of selling a psychology. Like you're kind of going, this is, I'm going to come back to the example of Guild Ball again, which is probably easy to pick on because it was recently retired. But but we when <laughs> I, I'm of the opinion that when Guild Ball was put forward, that it was, it was, it was kind of sold to people as a competitive game. Um, and it was kind of went, if you're a competitive player, come and play this, you'll enjoy this. And one of the things that, that um, we tried to do with it as we kind of went along was let's try and enhance the casual experience a little bit more bring in campaign events bring in other forms of organized play reasons to want to play the game away from tournaments it didn't really work that well because the thing is it was kind of baked in from the beginning from a dna level that this was going to be a competitive experience for you and that was put forward in the way that we even spoke about the game so even though we kind of tried to change that a little bit later on that kind of already set itself in the mind of the of the community as sold by the company uh, and as sold by us that made the game um so I, I, it's, I think, yes, it's partially uh, it's responsible for the players to kind of find a game that matches how they want to play and matches the kind of player they are. But I also think that companies are also kind of putting forward, uh, this is what kind of game this is. Whether they know it or not, it does happen. So, Doxy, I'm going to I'm going to give you a phrase that I hear often um, and I've heard it for several different games and it'll be, you hear it on a forum. You'll hear it on a Facebook post where somebody go competitive players are ruining this game. And I've heard it for several different games. Um, Where do you think that comes from? When when you read that, when somebody says, you know, you competitive players are ruining God tier. Where do you think that that means and where does it come from? Um, I mean, I I can answer that. I can probably answer that in a number of ways. I I think probably there's a few things. And as someone who was once back way back in first edition Malifaux accused of ruining Malifaux, um, (laughs) unironically, you know, I know I've had that leveled at me um, at me before. I think the um, 
often it comes from a place of either a frustration with someone's unwillingness to compete. I think one of the particular things you see around any kind of leaderboard or rankings is people don't often want to be confronted with their own win rate. Um, yeah. And as someone who, you know, probably the game I play most casually would be Hearthstone. Um, and I do not want to see my Hearthstone win rate, right? Like it, it will not be good. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, and I think, so I think to a certain extent, there's, there's that challenge. I, I think people very much confuse toxicity with competitiveness to, to the point Baldwin made earlier. I think you can get you can get get bogged down in actually someone is toxic because they're competitive. No, no, plenty of ca- you know casual players who are also toxic. Um, right. I don't think toxicity and competitiveness are the same thing, but I think it's often easier to level um at a competitive player because i think there are these handy mental model models the win at all cost player the the sort of you know pushing competitive to the point of cheating actually in my experience the most competitive players are often the fairest what you tend to find is it's players who want to push their win rate beyond their own ability that fall into that sort of toxic um or not even their own ability their own um willingness to make compromises to be competitive. So I mean, we mentioned earlier my, my, my dabbling with 40K. I, I'm playing Craftworld Elder. They are not very good. Um, according to the right. stats, they may be actually the worst army um, or close there too. The, but that's a concession I've made because that's what I want to play and therefore it impacts my win rate. Um, mm-hmm. If I want to push my win rate above level that is capable of sustaining, one of the ways to do that would be to cheat. And that's okay. yeah, and I think that's I think that's where it gets confused in people's minds is people trying to push things beyond their own ability, whereas actually a, a true competitive player doesn't do that. Well, and I'd be curious for you, Baldwin, because I mean you made a very interesting distinction with the narrative um, as maybe not meaning casual, but meaning game and game experience, right? So looking for a different type of gaming experience. Yep. Yep. Um, I'd like to understand that a little bit more from the player perspective. So when you say, uh, yeah, I think the majority of Drowned Earth players would label themselves as narrative players, what kind of player does that attract? And uh, like, let's talk about that. Well, so I think uh, for a start, um, some games have a stronger kind of role play element to them. Uh, Drowned Earth, you know, when when you put your crew, when you buy your starter box, it kind of looks like a D and D crew. You know, you've got a big tough guy, and you've got a sort of spellcastery type looking person, and then you've got a sort of sneaky, scouty, possibly stabby in the back type person. You know, and it so it lends into uh, leans into that sort of thing just purely aesthetically, without without that being actually a characteristic of the game itself. Um, but but I think, and so uh, really, uh, again, you know, we were talking earlier on about what kind, what kind of game, what are the characteristics of the game, whether that determines uh, what kind of players you get. And yeah, sure, of course it does to some degree. Um, the, the question is to what degree it excludes the other type of player. Um, and, and so, you know, d- does I, my, my uh, sort of general feeling is that um, very competitive games that were designed to be very competitive are also perhaps not in terms of the play environment and the tournament scene and things like that but just in terms of the rule set are completely suitable for casual players narrative players you know 
you know, any kind of player, really. Um, games that aren't very precisely designed can lead to very frustrating experiences for competitive players, I would say. Um, you know, some, there are just a few landmines in the rule set that, that, that people are going to trip over. Um, but really, so Drowned Earth as an example is a game really where the... I, I, tried to eliminate any kind of ambiguity in the rule set so that there's very precise timing for things to happen, um, very low ambiguity, what, how to resolve a particular situation should always be solvable by reading the rule book, you know, carefully, right. hopefully casually if I did my job properly. Um, but that isn't, that wasn't my design goal. That was just uh, a standard that I wanted to reach so that people can play the game competitively. And, and I am told by people who, who take it quite seriously that it absolutely can be. It's a game with a fairly high luck variance, uh, but in the same way that you can play Blood Bowl very competitively, um, which is also a game which, which is going to you know stamp on your nuts in, in the luck department uh, on quite a regular basis, probably at the worst possible time. Uh, Earth is, is that kind of um, luck variance. There's a fair amount of mitigation of luck. Um, really, the, the, the key to the design and the reason why I think I've attracted those kinds of players is because my one of my design goals was really to design a game that, that encouraged emergent storytelling and emergent narrative from the actual mechanics themselves. So you've got all these little cinematic moments where people uh, can, within the rules, within just a single smooth dice roll, leap uh, off a building, out of a window, into a water, and, um, you know, sort of firefight, you know, have a kind of Mexican standoff in midair with somebody that's halfway across the board uh, and then resolve, you know, how does that turn out? What happens? So all of these little hooks add to that kind of narrative character of the game. Um, but I think that really, you know, the, the key point for me is that certain games, um, it's really down to the precision of the rules as to whether a game yeah. can be played competitively it might not be perfectly suited to being played competitively because there might not be as much uh, you know sort of uh, depth in in terms of decision making and and um you know the the, the way in which the player um reduces the luck quotient and really n navigates their path through decision um you know the meeting of minds the ultimate example of course is chess where you know you've got per right. perfect information and zero luck um and i totally understand why um for a lot of people games with 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 high variance are quite frustrating experiences you've got the perfect plan and then you have it snatched out from under you um so i think really that that kind of i want to play competitively i want to win but I'm also okay with rolling with the punches when that happens and just saying, you know, that's, that's just, you know, what happens when you play a game with dice. Um, that kind of player profile is not necessarily an uncompetitive player. Um, right. But at the same time, they're just a different kind of competitive player, if that makes sense. Okay. That's fair, and I think... Oh, go ahead, Jamie. Sorry, I've got an interesting, interesting question, actually, for you, just as you were talking there, uh, James, which was, uh, you, you mentioned about the kind of game... The, it might have just been that you want to change your phrasing, perhaps, but you said the kind of games that can be played competitively. What do you think it is, then, that draws such massive crowds to games like Warhammer 40,000 and Age of Sigmar, which are, by by definition, not as... I would say they're probably not as accurately written. There's There's sometimes quite a degree hmm. of rules ambiguity there. There's definitely a lot of variance, but there's a heck of a lot of people that do play those competitively. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, like I, I think I've got. A, I mean, I'll, I'll also go there and answer the question myself after I've let you had a go because yeah. I think that I have an opinion on it. But like, why do you, do you think those people? Why do you think those kind of games therefore can be played competitively when they don't have the things that you're talking about? So I, I think it's because, and actually, it's a really good example to to bring up um, because very few people are all one thing or all the other. And in the case of Games Workshop claims, people love the fluff. They've loved it for thirty years. They've got huge nostalgia for it. A lot of people aren't even aware that there, there are other companies making miniatures games and even if they are they just do not care they want space marines they they love the fluff i read 40k books from time to time uh you know i've got a lot of nostalgia for some of that stuff nothing would possess me to play any of the games but actually no i i, I played some um uh shade spire underworlds i can't ever remember what it's called because they changed <laughs> it's a new name every week yeah. so. <laughs> and also they did that thing where like the actual name of the game was this was was the subtext not the not the actual yep. title but uh yep. so that was it's a bold but yeah yeah <laughs> but really i think that's what it comes down to i think i think that those players are number one 40k enthusiasts um in the wider sense and gamers in the second sense and lots of people like to play games and win and that's where that competitive uh, aspect comes from i don't disagree with what you're saying I, I think another way to perhaps summarize that is is that there are there is such a massive crowd for games workshop games that their organized play kind of almost springs up by osmosis by the fact that there are so yeah. many people there someone's going to want to play competitively yeah. and even yeah. if the, even if say the number of people that want to play um i don't know x-wing competitively is 20 percent, and even the number of people that want to play one of 40,000 is one percent by the fact that their audience is that much bigger then you're just yeah. going to see a large number of people playing tournaments still yeah so yeah, yeah. yeah i agree with what you're saying um Jamie, I, I'm going to give a statement here, and, and it's something that I've heard, and if it's wrong, tell me. Um, I've had lots of conversations with a lot of different people about God tier. And one thing that I'd heard from more than one pre, uh, person is that it appears by design there's a higher variance level there that like the, the, the dice mechanics are such that um, it can create greater variance. It, it, do you consider that an accurate statement, that that was par, uh, part of the design? By design, absolutely by design. Yeah. Uh, so God, God say was created in such a way that we wanted there to be. The, the, they, it's kind of something we talked touched on a little bit earlier, which is we want it in rules design. You want to give as few reasons for player conflict as possible. You want them to be able to read a rule, and both people have to have a perfect understanding of how that operates. If they come away with a different understanding of how it operates, that's when friction is created. You need FAQ yep. documents. You need discussions. You can't just get on with the game. Uh, so God say was created with the intention of having as few of those fric like uh, frictious interactions as possible. Uh, and so the people can just get on with playing, but we can still have a high dice variance, a high high RNG variance amount in the game, so that you don't have this way this this, this instance of people knowing exactly how a given conflict is going to is going to play out because of variance. So now that so we take we accept that as part of it, right? So we say that that's what it is, and this might be the fact of the the circles I'm in, but I don't know a casual player of god tier everybody that i know that is playing god tier and loving god tier i consider them competitive players mm -hmm. so i wonder i mean is that a conflict or 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 we again talk about rng may not be a part of that definition it's interesting really and i'm not entirely sure because it's uh, like there's there's I, I feel like god tier kind of sits in a very similar bit bubble to to x-wing x-wing 2.0 in the sense that they, there was a very definite change from the first edition of x-wing to the second edition where they went there is too much dice fixing there is not enough variance there is there is not enough emphasis on the fact that you could just get a little bit lucky sometimes and they, they dis determined through the, the sources that they have that they were losing players as 
a result. So they took a big risk when it came to second edition and made a massive change and they brought dice variants back into the gaming system. So they wanted to hit that nice balance between your choices matter. You have very fixed ways in which the rules work. You can only move your ships in very particular ways. You can point in particular directions. And assuming you have done all that, there is still some that you could just, you could have the perfectly flown ship and still miss all of your shots. Um, and that was kind of met with uh, a kind of mixed response, but there's still a massive audience there for X-Wing and people that love second edition. More people came in to join the game. That's when I started playing X-Wing because first edition was a little bit intimidating because of the massive stuff going on. Um, and I think that's that God tier sits or is attempting to sit in a very p- similar position. It wants your choices to matter, which is why competitive players can enjoy the game. They feel like your choices, you have player agency, so your choices are important, but also there's that element of it, that little bit of unpredictability that we find, that we find fun um, because whether, kind of gamers accept this or not we all do want that degree of variance because um, otherwise like all of us wouldn't be playing miniatures games we would all be playing chess chess is very popular yep. that's not to diss chess in the slightest but there is no variance in that with the exception of kind of i guess who how it goes first um and 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 if you're not playing chess therefore you're accepting that you want a degree of variance whether that is greater or smaller um so yeah it's it's I, I, I think it's it's interesting that we are seeing that kind of de- I guess demographic is not the best word, but the, but the number of people playing these kinds of games. But it doesn't surprise me massively because it's being done by other game systems, i.e. X-Wing. Right, right. So I'd be interested, Doxy. Um, I recently was having a conversation with Cody Hyatt, who's a, who's a frequent guest here on the show. And uh, Cody is an X-40K player, as a lot of my guests are. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of digging into Cody's head a little bit, trying to figure out why he left 40K. And he knew the exact moment. He played, he played a game. It was a competitive game. So it was in a 40K tournament. Um, and he said, at the end of the game, he lost the game. At the end of the game, he realized there was four decision points that mattered in the whole game. Um, and there was a two, two, you know, two, three hour game. He said there was four decision points. Three of them, my opponent made the wrong decision. I could go back to each of those three decision points and show where it wasn't like, you know, less optimal. Was, they were bad choices. And he got lucky on the fourth one and he lost the game. And when he realized that one, he spent three hours making four decisions, that his opponent made the worst decisions of them all and he still lost the game. That's when he left 40K and he went to uh, War Machine. Now I'm talking to James Doxey, who uh, I brought onto the pod two years ago first as a competitive gamer in Malifaux, and now I find out you're playing 40K. So I'd be curious to know what your assessment of what Cody was saying, whether you think that that is being exaggerative, or do you think that 40K might be like that? Oh, I, I, no, I think that that's a very fair assessment um, of 40K. Um, I think the, you know, it has a huge degree of variance, um, and I think you you create a you know, it's a game as well to to a much larger extent that is decided before you turn up to the you know turn up to the game, um, which has its advantages and disadvantages. Um, and, you know, and this has been something that's very much been a lockdown project, right? Because the amount of time I can spend playing a game without other people significantly <laughs> um, at the moment um, exceeds the amount of time you can spend playing with other people. So, so to some extent, you know, this has been a hobby project. I'll be, I'm going to be very interested to see if it's something I've got any interest in continuing to do once the pandemic is hopefully over. Um, the, the, the thing I think about when I think about this sort of thing, though, is I think about there's probably a comfort zone, and I think it's unique probably to everybody, or sort of everyone would certainly have a different one, of sort of an upper and a lower level or an upper and lower limit of the win rate you want out of a game, right? 
So, and, and different games will naturally produce, will have interference in them. There is at the ceiling to how, what, what probability you can win at. You know, so some games will never get above. And I, I'd be interested there. I think 40K maybe has a, at best, the best 40K player on the best day might not have more than a, a 90% win rate or an 85% win rate. I think Malifaux, which is the game I'm most familiar with, I think actually that was closer to that possibly closer to a hundred percent or not yeah. not far not that not not much further off. I think one of the things that and particularly where skills are mismatched, right? Um, in, in a mismatched try that again. In a mismatched skill level game, a forty k, I, I still think the less skilled player probably still wins forty five fifty percent. Maybe you know you know you know, still. Maybe not forty five percent, fifty percent of the time, but you know, you sort of you can still your your win rate may even you may never get above a certain level. You think about that in Malifaux, that's maybe five percent, ten percent. I think about that in God tier, even with, with the dice spiking. Jamie talked about there is there is so much control and decision making and quality decision making in God tier that in you know a top tier competitive player with experience versus someone playing for the first time, I, I, you know, if, if they were to, if that player were to play to win, I still think they'd be looking at 95% plus win rate. And I yeah. think it's that, that comfort zone. I don't want to win a hundred percent of my games cause that's dull, but my comfort zone in terms of win rate is reasonably high on a spectrum. And I think that that's one way to consider it when you're matching yourself to a game. I think player agency, because I, I talked about it and then you've kind of built on the point as well, Docs, with what you just said there. <clears throat> and I think something interesting, just as I'm thinking about, as you're saying there, player agency, a point to talk about actually is is that one of the differences we could probably argue between a casual or competitive player is both of those types of players actually really like player agency. They like the ability to do what they want to do. The difference is, is that the competitive player is thinking, I want the player agency to be able to control the outcome of this game win-loss. The casual player is thinking, I want the agency in this game to do something I think is really awesome and really cool. And it might not even have anything to do with winning the game or not, but I want right. the ability to do yep. something that I think is amazing. Um, and I think it's like it's it, just in terms of like player agency being important. I actually, think it's important to both types of players for different reasons. Yeah, and I think that's why um, the, uh, denial as, as a as a sort of uh, um, as a design tool is a really dangerous one to overuse mm. because that's another thing that can really just create huge negative play experience. That I don't mind losing; I just want to play with my toys. And you know, Magic the Gathering is notorious for that. It's like, well, I'd like to. Well, you can't. Well, then I'd like to do. Well, no, or you know, you also can't. Well, I'd like to actually. Shall I just go to the loo and I'll come back and you can tell me how I did? Uh, you know. Um, yeah, big big negative. Something that you, know, you need some of it definitely uh, in a game right. design, but you just have to be careful and also mindful of the kind of uh, play experience that you're creating. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give all three of you uh, temporary status as uh, amateur psychologists, and I'm, we're gonna put me in the chair. Okay, <laughs> so get, get ready. We're gonna start with Baldwin, and we're gonna try to figure out Craig's stupid head. So here's the thing: um, Malfoy is my favorite mini game. Um, I have a podcast devoted to uh, that every other episode is devoted to Malifaux. I talk about Malifaux competitively. Um, I, the only organized play I've ever done and, you know, I've played, I don't know, a dozen different mini games and the only organized play I've ever done is in, is in Malifaux. I am not good at the game. So I would venture to guess my win rate is probably 30% that I will lose two out of three games, but obviously I'm interested in the competitive aspect of Malifaux. I love 
competing in Malifaux. I love talking about competition in Malifaux. So Baldwin, uh, what is going on in my head? Am I truly, am I lying to myself that I'm a competitive player? Um, why do I keep playing Malifaux I keep, if I keep losing? I suspect, uh, in fact, it's, it's what Mr. Perkins uh, said earlier on. You are attracted by the matrix of choices that you have uh, and you enjoy the thought process uh, of working out what your best move is. Uh, you don't mind that uh, you're consistently proved wrong or, or semi-consistently proved wrong or that somebody else is, uh, somebody else has outsmarted you or that you know, the, your, your best chance isn't, isn't, your best attempt isn't good enough. Um, and I think there's an awful lot to be said for that. And uh, again, back to the denial thing, I think there's a, uh, there's a lot of satisfaction in being able to execute a plan that wasn't good enough to win, but still gave you a sense of uh, satisfaction. I don't, I don't know if I think that that makes you less of a competitive player. I don't think your ability to win is the defining characteristic in whether you're competitive or not. That's the defining characteristic on whether you're a good competitive player or not. <laughs> 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 that's what I am, though. I, 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 forgive me. Just, just, I, you just keep conjuring to mind the, the sort of the Thomas Edison, you know, I, I, you know, I find 600 ways not to make a light bulb, yeah. and it's the same this <laughs> <laughs> Craig's found 600 ways not to play Malifaux. <laughs> That's really funny. You can also kind of flip the, what, uh, what James was saying on his head, James Bobbin was saying on his head there in terms of like, you like having the agency in front of you to be able to, and have this interesting matrix of choices. It could also be argued that, or yeah, it'd be interesting to have you actually answer this question about whether you're interested to see the kinds of uh, uh, options available to other people and see the kind of plans that they execute. Because you can also enjoy seeing someone else play a game very well. And, and often, I think one of the things that all gamers across whether you're casual, whether you're competitive, every single game that likes to play these games, everyone will enjoy a closely fought game where a lot of cool stuff happened rather than a game where it was a landslide one way or a game that was equally close where not a lot of stuff happened, where there was too much control in place on both sides. I think if there's like kind of like a, a game that's themed around combat and it was a bloodbath on both sides and it was a very narrow margin of victory on one, but it's very rare that you'll get someone to walk away from that game and go, I, I didn't enjoy that at all, but a lot of really cool stuff happened. Um, so sometimes it can be about the enjoyment of the experience from there and the enjoyment of what the other player is doing and how those two things come together. So sorry, I did send a question in that, which was sorry, which was would you say that's correct? <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I think both both uh, both you and Baldwin are, are are on the nose there, and and I'd be curious for you, Doxy. I mean, you you have your version of Craig's in the UK and your Malifaux scene there, right? Where you've got people that come to every tournament and they and they don't do well. I mean, what is your take on that type of situation? Where and and every game has it. I'm just using Malifaux as an example. What do you think drives that player, a player like me, and players that you've gone against that aren't quite frankly very good in a competitive scene but they show up to every tournament well i mean people enjoy things for different reasons and you know and socialize you know some of it is is social right you know people enjoy um so the social construct of of kind of going to a tournament um for people potentially a little bit on the spectrum actually a having a structure around social interaction can be very helpful for certain certain personality types and i I think that i think that's not to be underestimated in all forms of of organized gaming and activity so i think i think that that's very much something the other thing i think and one of the other things i think malifaux has has really has going for it is because there is no capability to netlist in it Everyone has agency in the sense that everyone makes their own decisions there. And I think that that creates a situation where um, it's like there's no pressure to bring, quote unquote, the best list, right? You're all exploring that because 
you know the random combination of scenarios and objectives in front of you and the terrain in front of you means you can you know you, you're building your list at the table so there's much less of that um I need to be playing this technically the best list in order to you know in order to come away with the prize which I think means players have more or have a sense that they might you know that they can they've got much more room to explore and innovate as players yeah yeah, I, I can definitely see that. So it was a trick question. Uh, the trick question is because I, I I poorly execute at the table, so that's why I lose my games. But it, I don't lose my games because I don't understand it. I don't lose it because I don't get the game. Um, and I and I can tell you five minutes after losing a game why I lost the game. Uh, it's because for whatever reason I get uh, my my head shorts out when I'm actually playing the game itself. But I thought it was a good way to kind of delve into this concept, right? Of of what makes competitive, especially when we're talking about um, win rates and such. The one thing before we take a break that I want to just delve into a little bit more. Um, and, and Baldwin, this is building off something that you have, you've get in the back of my mind, you've gotten my wheels turning. So uh, I talk about Malifaux being my primary game, but quite honestly, the game I'm playing the most right now is Marvel Crisis Protocol. And I have always in my head been calling it the casual game, right? It's the game I play casual. I play Malifaux competitively. I play it casual i think i now play marvel narratively <laughs> i think that's my attraction and that distinction that you made is because it's the cinematic nature of marvel crisis protocol that i think really attracts me but um when i dive a little bit deeper into it um even though probably during covid i for every one game of malifaux i've played i've probably played four games of marvel crisis protocol but i've thought more about malifaux in laps than I have about MCP. Mm. So I, and this is a, something that Perkins has talked about too. Um, is that a factor? How much mind space away from the table we spend, does that in any way impact whether someone plays something casually or competitively? So I don't think about MCP. I don't think about list building in MCP. I don't think about card combinations and counters um, with MCP, though you can, but I do with Malifaux. Is, is that an element that 90% were away from the game? I'm not sure. I, I, I imagine possibly the amount of time you spend away from the table is down to two things. Number one, a desire to um, not necessarily to win, but, to, you know, the, the end goal is to win. But it, it's to uh, paint the perfect um, playbook, you know, uh, that, that sort of thing. And if, if there's if there's that mental challenge, Malifaux has that kind of uh, uh, depth of rules interaction and uh um, Marvel Crisis Protocol doesn't, then inevitably you're going to spend more time thinking about the thing that there's just more to think about. Um, and yeah, I guess it's just a function of um, how much satisfaction you get out of executing your plan rather than just rolling dice and seeing what happens. And Perkins, this was your concept that uh, you really talked about in your episode that we had. Um, what do you think? Do you think that that um, helps define either the player or the game? Uh, yeah, I don't think it actually defines the game at all. I think it's to do with the, the players because I can take a very extreme example of this and I, I was trying to move away from it, but it's actually incredibly relevant to this subject, which is Guild Ball, right? So <laughs> one of the weaknesses of Guild Ball as a concept, I think, is that it actually gave players very little to think about and talk about away from the table. Yeah. Like In hindsight, that's probably a weakness of its design. A lot of players that loved Guild Ball really wanted to do that and it was a constant complaint where a source of frustration, entirely valid as well. We want stuff to talk about. There isn't anything to talk about. So kind of all we've really got to discuss is the new stuff that comes out because we haven't put it on the table yet. We haven't figured out how it works. We haven't figured out how it's supposed to work. So other than that, we haven't really got any chat 
anything to podcast and the, the podcasters were very focused on the stuff the new stuff that was coming out yep. and yeah so so i don't actually think it's to do with the game i think the responsibility of the game is to get you infused to the point that you want to talk about it away from the table and um and and at that point, it's like it's done its job. I mean, hopefully, you, the, the game has something to talk about with the table, and right. most of the most tabletop games do. But really, it's at that point, it's it's the main job of the game is to get the players enthused to the point where they do want to talk about it and to give them something to talk over when they get there. Um, so the two games you've talked about, MCP and um, and Malifaux, I think those, from my limited understanding of both, is that I think there is enough kind of to talk about in both cases. There probably is more to talk about with Malifaux, but there is stuff to talk about with the table with Marvel. But for whatever reason, it hasn't gripped you to that extent. Right. Um, so I think that's more to do with you as a player rather than rather than the games. It's it's about it's about how much has each one of them gripped you to to the extent of doing that. And when we're talking about that sort of away from the table talk, are we talking about breaking down what happened in previous games, or are we talking about list building tactics for in the future? How how would you define that? A bit of both. I, I say yeah. I say yes to both. Yeah. How about you? No, I, I, just, I disagree, uh, actually, oh. which is, I think it's, I think that every single game that we play will, or will by definition, the fact that you're playing a game, give you stuff to talk about what happened in hindsight. I can come and I can list off you a battle report I played from War Machine. I can do the same thing with Guild Ball. I can do the same thing with God Tear. I can do the same thing with Armada. All those games, because by the process I'm in playing them, I'm enjoying them, I'm making decisions. There's a story to be told about what occurred. Sometimes it'll be more narrative. Sometimes it'll be less. And that kind of feeds into what you were saying before about cinematic moments. And I think better games for, to- better games for talking about what happened are games that do give you the cinematic moments but even games that don't i can still tell you i can still reel off for you what happened and a really extreme example of that is red if anybody watched red dwarf rimmer's risk stories where he's just reeling off a series of numbers of dice rolls he did super extreme example really boring is a battle report he's talking yeah. about a previous experience so yeah. um i think i think i'm uh, it's, that's why i lean more heavily into it's the theory crafting it's the what am i going to do next time talking about things in the future um and that that is that's is where i think there's more customization to be had. That, that was my assumption about what what was uh, what we were talking about there um because i definitely know and and, and you know that again it's another pitfall of of um, certain game design, uh, in fact, uh, Doxy touched on it earlier, uh, where the game's already been decided before you got to the table by virtue yeah. of what you what list you've chosen. And, and as far as I'm concerned, you know, to some degree, that's down to player decision, but that's that's also uh, inherent in the design as well at times, isn't it? Yeah, I, I completely agree. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk a little bit um, about what uh, Perkins brought up, which is the companies that are making these games and where the responsibility um, falls um, uh, as far as in the design space. So I want to just kind of build up on that a little bit more. So we'll be right back. Hi, my name is Noah Suderman, and my dad is a Patreon supporter of Third Floor Wars. I listen to Tabletop Talk because of the hard work and effort that Craig Shipman puts into every podcast so that his viewers can become better Malifaux players. What is it worth to you to get this podcast on a weekly basis? Is it worth a dollar a month? $5 a month? $20 a month? If you'd like to help support the work that we're doing here on Third Floor Wars, please go buy our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash thirdfloorwars. There you can pledge at any level, any dollar amount. Whatever you give us will help us put out quality content on a regular basis and hopefully make tabletop gaming a little bit better for you every week. 
Time for a special shout out to our newest patrons. Uh, I want to thank Eloy, Robo Rotten, Jacob Suderman, Joshua Hatch, Donald Kroger, John Fox, David Gadea, Anthony Nguyen, and Alexander Moritzen. Because of you and the hundred other plus uh, patrons, I'm able to put out quality content on a regular basis. I appreciate your support. So when a company sits down and says they're going to make a game, and Perkins kind of talked about this a little bit with Guild Ball, um, I will make the argument that I think Privateer Press did this with um, a, one of the versions, uh, iterations of, of War Machine. There's a decision on what they're going to do. You know, Games Workshop for the longest time said, look, we're a miniatures company. We're not a gaming company. We're just giving you rules to, to go with. We're not trying to make this a tight rule set or competitive. They almost wore it as a badge of honor for a long time. They don't do it so much anymore. Um, and and Baldwin, the one thing that you brought up that really kind of gets my gears turning too is the idea that um, denial is potentially bad game design. Um, so let's let's talk about that a little bit more. Do you think, um, as a designer, that that you have an obligation um, to one decide what type of game it's going to be and who you're going to attract, or um, does that just kind of happen on its own? No, I think I think when you start designing whatever it is, whether it's a miniatures game or a board game, you really absolutely need to know who you're designing it for, uh, and and that might be very broad. And you, but but you need to have an idea in your head. Uh, I, as I say, it could be very very narrow or very broad. It doesn't matter as long as you've thought about it. I think it's a, it's a, a really bad thing to just kind of stumble into something like that, uh, or just not to be mindful uh, about it. Um, and I would say that uh, you know the. My responsibility, I think, as a game designer is is to present both players with uh, as many interesting choices as possible. Uh, and that kind of feeling of agency uh, is obviously removed when you add uh, too many denial tactics. And I, I think, you know, I'm not an enemy of denial. There's, there's certainly some of it in The Drowned Earth. But I just think um, it's something that you need to be mindful of because every time you allow a denial tactic, you reduce an interesting choice that the opponent has to make. And that's something that you should be careful of, I would say. Um, James, as you're going through, uh, Doxy, as you're going through and looking at a, a new game, um, uh, how do you evaluate whether you're either, either going to try it or not? So you had at some point had never played God tier. And as a, as, as a self-proclaimed competitive player, when did you decide that you were even going to try God tier? So what was it about God tier that attracted you as, as a consumer um, versus the two designers that we have? So, I mean, I think with God tier particularly, I mean, it came from Stephen Forge, which yeah, has a great pedigree with, you know, with organized play-based games. I think that, that was, I almost backed it um, the, day, the, the day the Kickstarter closed. Um, and, and in the end, I decided not to and to wait. So it kind of been on my mind for a little while, you know, it kind of been in the back of my mind. Um, and, and I think it was interesting. It was a hex-based system. I'd been playing a little bit of Warhammer Underworlds, which... Um, had a bit too much variance um, and a bit too much of the um, the sort of the the, the um, X-wing collectible model um, to it for me, and so it, it, broadly it was that kind of combination of things. And then the sort of from a demo, you know, I, I was blown away by the elegance of the design, the, the sort of the simplicity and the depth combined together. I think that was, you know, I, I think that's it's probably the best written first game i've ever encountered it's the first edition of a game that i've ever encountered um I, the level of refinement of the rules so I, I think that was 
that was what sold me on that. But from a competitive standpoint, I think it was high degree of player agency and the ability of, um, yes, a high degree of player agency, meaningful choices, but that sort of combined with that, that simplicity that meant and the clarity of rules, I think. Yeah. And, and now Perkins, I, um, you know, you came from, you kind of made your mark as a competitive war machine player, right? That's really what, um, kind of put you on the scene and led to, led to your path to, um, to uh, Steamforged, do you find yourself as a designer and a developer um, really thinking a lot about casual versus competitive, and what is this game's target? And are we going to to what Baldwin's talk about? Make sure that it's available to both. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's something that is kind of a little bit more um, easier said than done, uh, and it, it's something that uh, as a company, just going to talk for Steamforged for a second. It's as a, something as a company, we've kind of feel like we've gotten better at over the years because we now have a, a position called the product owner, where we which we didn't have previously. We've got to a point where you can justify the size of having that now, where the the role of that person is to be the is to be the consumer, is to go. This is the target audience we determined at the start. Is it still serving this purpose at every point through the through the through the product's development? God tier was one of the first times that we had that kind of position in place, that kind of perspective coming in. Um, and it was something that is, it's something that is really important for someone that isn't a game designer and someone that isn't, or someone, someone that has experience in doing that, but their role isn't a game designer, their role is a game developer, someone else that's coming in from an outside perspective, just as a kind of checking point to go, is this still occurring? Is the things you want to do matching up from this? Because it's very easy to deviate from that. Um, because there, there are so many other different points that you want to hit in a game's design, game development. We're hitting all these elements. Is it a licensed IP that we're trying to make sure we're being faithful to? Um, is, it, is, is it playing in the amount of time that we need it to play in? Is it easy to set up? Is it easy to understand? Um, you know, is it hitting the, the correct spec for this to be an affordably, affordable to produce game? There are so many other things to consider that it is absolutely important. And it's not to say that game designers are not thinking about that. They absolutely are. But game designers and developers have got so many of these different points to make sure that they're hitting every single one of them. And this one is so utterly crucial that it is absolutely a critical value to have someone else come in and go, just to make sure we're still doing this. We're still hitting that target audience. We're still... Right answering these questions we need to do that and just let's, let's analyze that again and have a, a back and forth about this p- point particularly because it's so critical because you can get a game into someone's hands and go the worst thing that can be is you go i'm super excited about this game i have everything i've heard about it i've loved i've loved everything the designers and developers said about it and it's come out i've got it in my hands and i play it and i go this is not what i was sold uh and this yeah. is not i think one of the most famous examples of that possibly is actually war machine that is that was originally sold as this is a game about big monsters and big robots smashing into each other and then when you play it and anything up to the end of say mark two of the game the second edition of the game was actually this game is kind of more about you take a couple of the war beasts and a couple of the robots and then you fill the rest of the board out with infantry and you have a battle um and it took them quite a long time to shift away from that, but that was that was a big misconception that people kind of... It got to a point where the volunteers that were recruiting new players would go, this is what the game is sold as. You will play this in the demo, but be aware that this is not what the game is when you buy into it properly. This is a game of... It's a, it says it's a game of skirmishes between large robots and war beasts, but actually it's a big battle game where you play a lot of infantry, et cetera, and move forwards. So it's it's critically important that you that you get that right and you make sure that you don't have that disappointment where players are going, this is not what I expected. Yeah, and I feel like in the within your design process, you have a little bit of room, right? Where you can you can say, okay, this is actually deviated away from what we originally intended, but we're we're happy with the direction. To to do that in um, mid release, 
you know, a couple of years after you've released, you found that the game has just evolved into something else. It's actually surprisingly easy to do because other, other kind of, you know, market forces come into play and you suddenly realize you don't actually need to sell models. And, uh, you know, maybe people aren't buying the particular ones that you want them to buy and the new releases, uh, you know, not uh, uh, in order to incentivize people to buy the new models, they're actually changing the character of name. It's uh, changing the character of the game. And I think it's all about mindfulness, really. It's all about understanding how much those those different choices impact the sorts of things that we're talking about and making sure that you're still on target. It, it's, it's definitely easy to do, which is I agree with what you're saying there. The point at which I, I have concerns sometimes is when companies go, it's very easy to go, it is very, it is factual, like you said, it's completely true. It's very easy to go, this is what's wrong with the game. We know it's been out for a while. We can analyze this. These are the changes we need to make. I think the reason why it doesn't happen more often is because there's a, there's a, um, there's a there's a kind of delta between we have the this is what the game is and this is the players we have that are invested in the game that are spending yep. money that like even though we don't like where the game is these yep. people do and they are spending money and yep. it is like the more that you change that the more that you risk going we might lose some of these people we might gain more people and that that constitutes an unknown which is really scary in the business world yeah um, particularly for something that can be as volatile as the gaming industry can be um so it's i think that's why you're right it is easy to do structurally mechanically but often companies will go i'm really scared about this i can't justify mm. on a financial forecast there's a big risk there we need to make that more stabilized I'd be interesting, Doxy, hearing, uh, you know, these two guys talk about stuff from one side of this. You're on the other side as a consumer. How much of this is it rings with you or, 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 or tickles your brain a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think particularly, you know, the, the point about the player base taking the game or, you know, the players you've got and what they're buying, taking the game in a particular direction. Um, and, and I think... You know, being around at the beginnings of Malifaux having a competitive scene um, and sort of some of those early early decisions, you you can you can sort of you can kind of see that. And I think particularly, I'd be interested to know um, what the what the game designers on the on, on the cast think about the sort of to what extent is that left open. So Jamie talked earlier about um, Guild Ball being marketed as a competitive game and therefore they wound up with a competitive player base, right? Um, and, and, and Baldwin's talk, talked about creating a narrative experience through Drowned Earth and therefore winds up broadly with a certain set of players. Where companies are less defined on that point and it's left for the player base to define what the game is, um, you know, do, do you think that that's a misstep or the sort of where you create a vacuum, like an absence of competitive rules um, from day one in things? And therefore, when people are organizing organized play, who takes a lead there can actually generate a level of influence beyond that you'd want the community to have? It's probably not brilliantly articulated, but I, hopefully you follow the point. Who do you want to direct that to first? Oh, well, both of you <laughs> want to jump in. Go for it. Cool. Uh, so I, I think that the responsibility there primarily falls on the company. And that doesn't necessarily mean the company has to come up with the ideas. You could also have a game that's come out where the community goes, we've had an idea for how this can be run as an organized play. And the company goes, that's great. We're going to take that and run with it. That can also happen. It's fine. It doesn't really matter where the idea comes from, but it's absolutely the responsibility of the, of the company to promote where they think the game should go. Uh, and to go, you've had a great idea. Let's take it. 
you had a great idea, but it's not really what we want to do with the game, and this is what we want to do with it instead. They they really should have a voice in that regard. And if they don't, then that is a, that is a problem. It's not something that should be left open for a community to decide. It should be, if anything, it should be. The thing is, the company signing the game should know that. They should know <laughs> what they want from their game. Like, and if they don't, I'd be concerned about it. Um, so, therefore, if they know about, if they know about it, all they really have to do is talk about it. And if they're not talking about it, that is a secondary. That's a secondary problem. I I, I fully think it's the responsibility of the company. Yeah, I have very similar thoughts. I think that if you if you find yourself in a position where your community is trying to steer your game in a direction that you didn't intend, the mistake's already been made, um, and that might that might be something that you can then run with and you can correct. Uh, and for you know, if you've got a if you've got a big uh, customer base and you're happy to go in the direction they want you to go in, then happy days if it works out for you. From a design point of view, you know, from a business point of view, that sounds fine. From a design point of view, it makes me really nervous because yeah. designing games is really complicated. Um, and you might find that there are all kinds of artifacts from the original intention of your design, which are just totally incompatible with this new direction you want to go in and, and i mean again you know the business uh, uh part of my you know the devil on my shoulder is saying great that sounds like a second edition uh you know, <laughs> um but you know from from i sort of yeah uh, i think I'd, I'd i'd rather know what i was doing from the start um and attract the player base that i wanted to instead of trying to correct uh, a course error so, Parkins, I'm going to put put a situation out there for you because we saw this happen. Um, you have uh, Warhammer Fantasy, and cr- probably the you know at the time that was the competitive for a, a war, uh, Games Workshop game, right? That's where the competitive players were. The casual, more casual players were in 40k. It was the uh, you know the rank and file fantasy game that was super competitive. That gets blown up, and for those that may not remember. The first edition of AOS comes out and there's no points. There's, I mean, it is just free form, bring whatever the heck you want. And, um, you know, I know that you had an awareness of this Perkins uh, that caused exactly what we're talking about, which is the players going, no, we don't want to accept that. And do you think that um, Games Workshop always intended to have points and to put AOS where it is now? Or do you think that they were reacting to the, to the, uh, to the player base? No, I think they reacted. I think that uh, there's a metric I've mentioned about Games Workshop a couple of times, which is I think that, and this isn't necessarily meant as an insult to Games Workshop. It's, it's literally talking about their business model. It's what they've chosen to do. It's what they think is what makes money. And it quite clearly works. They're the biggest player in the market, bar none. So it's not intended as, a, as, a, as something that's meant to uh, be insulting to them or the people that like Games Workshop or their games. But, but they, <clears throat> they, the rules in their games are good enough to facilitate selling their miniatures kind of you touched on it earlier when i said that they're a, a miniatures company and they don't worry too much about their the rule set they they do but their rule sets are there to facilitate those miniature game sales and the moment at which they cross a threshold where the players go the rules are not good enough here you're going to sell fewer miniatures games workshop go cool it's not good enough reset the margin make it higher make it better to the point at which we're happy to sell miniatures um and i think that uh, ages the original the first year of age of sigmar is a super interesting point in the history of games workshop as a company because this is a point this is one of the first times they really crossed the line with their player base and went we're actually going to try a new level here of 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 uh, rules ambiguity of making you guys make stuff up for yourselves and actually just really focus on selling the miniatures and the player base went no we're not accepting this we want rules of a particular standard or we're not buying your miniatures games workshop reacted to that and then went fine we accept that let's do it differently and continue to sell miniatures to you in a way that you're happy with 
And I mean, I, I, you know, I think that's I think it's a really good point. I think the other thing from my perspective with, with, with all of that was I work for a very large organization um, that's over 300 years old, and we're constantly tripping over the legacy um, of sort of decisions that made a lot of sense some time ago, maybe not 300 years ago, but, but certainly, <laughs> you know, certainly a long time ago. And it, sort of quite often I'm operating in the wreckage of decisions that were, that were, were a good idea at the time. Um, and I, I suppose there aren't, I, I would, Games Workshop as well being the biggest, he's probably largely the oldest player in this space. And to a certain extent, I, I suspect they're operating with a level of grandfathered in issues i always think this sort of the rest of the industry leads to a certain extent and games workshop follows because it's a lot bigger ship to steer and and i still think that to an extent to the point you made about aos and the reboot of aos they were operating they were still struggling to get out of that period in the early 2000s late 90s where they decided the internet was a fad and their customers were the enemy right and, <laughs> and i you know and, and i think it took them a long time to get from that position which would be, they held admirably, right? I mean, it must have been, you know, it's only in the last probably eight years that we've seen the end of that era. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think that to sort of, to then, you know, they're then trying to turn the ship. So, I, you know, the point about blowing up fantasy and going, well, we're going to do this with AOS, I think it's probably, the response to that probably did finally kill, so at least from the outside, that 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 the last of that view of, of we're, we're gonna, we're, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna make this for a very specific thing, and we're gonna tell you what it is, and I think right. that really, and like to, yeah, and you're gonna like it, and I think maybe, maybe that combined with the growth of the rest of the industry, um, it, almost in, you know, in air, in in parts of the marketplace they once had an abandoned, right? Like how much of the industry operates in in territory that if they hadn't killed specialist games you know, wouldn't be there. Yeah. I, I think is interesting, um, and I, I think you know it feels like they're they're in the legacy of those old decisions um, to a certain extent, which why it takes them so long at times to adapt. I'd be curious, Baldwin, um, because you're kind of in a unique situation because uh, the Olea Chronicles is, is a new game, but it's the same universe um, as, as your other game. Um, so let's go back to when, when that started to happen. Um, were you saying, you know, I, I want to, make a game and I anticipate or want the same people that are playing Drowned Earth to play this, or was part of creating Ulea Chronicles you saying, I'm going I want to go somewhere else. I want to I want to tap into some other people that that are that may not like Drowned Earth, but they would like this. Or was that not even part of your process? Was it just, you know, hey, I got this idea and I want to make this game. Um so, so the way I approached it really was it it's a similar but broader um, target audience with a lower barrier to entry. Um, so it's a game in a box. It's got scenery in it. It's got dice in it. Uh, you can crack it open and start playing straight away. It's standees, not miniatures. You can buy the miniatures separately if you want to. Um, and uh, the key is that you can play it solo and co-op. So it's a war game. It's a miniatures-based uh, war game, um, but a cooperative narrative one where rather like a dungeon crawler, you go through the course of, well, there are 14 different scenarios, uh, but it's branching, so you probably play 10. Uh, and it tells an overarching story and it's fail forward. So when Lady Luck stamps on your balls, 
um, you, you still progress. You don't have to replay the scenario. Um, and it uses the same rules DNA as, as Drowned Earth, which uh, is, uh, was a very conscious decision so that a lot of the components would be backwards compatible and that people would be able to use Alaya Chronicles as a stepping stone to get into Drowned Earth. They'd have a bunch of components which they could use. They'd be familiar with a lot of the core concepts and upgrading to the sort of, you know, big brother uh, wouldn't be too difficult. Uh, ironically, in the other direction, Drowned Earth players are going to find it completely baffling because there's a whole load of stuff that's left out and, and simplifications and things. And they're almost definitely going to play you know, largely Drowned Earth rules. Uh, and I think it actually still works, uh, um, even though they're doing it wrong, um, which, <laughs> which is good news uh, and, and also a little part of the, the design sensibility. Um, but really where it came from as a game uh, was the... Um, it evolved from writing a Drowned Earth expansion uh, where you could have Drowned Earth as a game with, you know, jungle and dinosaurs in it. Um, and it's a way of playing the game competitively, or I was developing a way to play the game competitively, um, but to have independent uh, AI-controlled dinosaur models in the middle of the board and designing scenarios around that sort of thing. Um, and it became uh, obvious pretty quickly that I could kind of use the same rule system to do both, uh, to right. use in Drowned Earth and to create a completely cooperative narrative experience. And where, where I've described Drowned Earth as a narrative game, it's, it's, a, it's emergent narrative. You have to, you, you're given the hooks, but you have to describe the narrative uh, Alaya Chronicles, you know, has has a campaign book, and you read out sections of text, and story happens, that sort of thing. So it sounds like then, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it wasn't a conscious decision of there's an audience out there that I'm not touching, and I'm going to make a game to reach out to them. It sounds like it just kind of evolved into being different than Drowned Earth. Does that did I capture that right? I, I would say that it's just it's easier in the modern climate to roll a game out on your coffee table with a smaller footprint where you don't have to build and paint scenery, where you don't have to have models. It's an easier way to access the same kind of experience as Drowned Earth um, in a co-op stroke solo um, solo way. Yep. Um, and Jamie, you may not be able to talk about this, so I might edit all this entire question out, but um Finding new audience, how much is that part of the Steamforged uh, process as far as saying, let's create Bard Song? Um, I don't think it's necessarily something that's specific to Steamforged. I think it's something I can talk about because it seems just like good business strategy. Like you never want to kind of be cannibalizing your audience. Like right. this, you don't want, you don't, ideally you don't want to be selling too many of this, too much of the same thing to the same people. You do have some, some game enthusiasts that will just love how a company makes a game and want to buy everything that you make. And those people are wonderful, but they're also few in number. Um, so you're, you're also look there most, most gamers, he says in invert commas, only have a limited amount of cash to spend on games and they like a particular type of game as well so if you're constantly hitting those same people selling them the same type of game they only have so much money they can spend with you every month and they're going to pick one thing over the other and that's going to as i say you're, you're cannibalizing your audience cannibalizing your game so it's just good business sense to want to do that so it is absolutely something that we're that we're conscious of at steamforged right. um, but, but i think most gaming companies also are and I think it also depends on the, the, the size of your business and the size of the audience as well. You know, whether you're still at that growing stage, like there's, there's, there's still a lot, uh, a lot of untapped potential in the target audience that you're going for, or whether you feel like you've reached saturation and now the only way to expand is to increase to a slightly different target audience. Yep. 
Agreed. I think it's also just like, it's a smart thing to want to be able to reach out to different audiences as well, because you've got an increase. The more you do that, you also have the, an increased chance of cross-pollination. So someone mm-hmm. might go, I've never heard of Steamforge games before, but I really like Devil May Cry. So I'm going to have a look at what else they also did. And I actually end up liking some of the other stuff. So you end, you might end up getting fans for your competitive games that didn't even start out as competitive gamers, but they didn't yeah. want to see what else, what other things you've made because you impressed them with one of your products. And I think that's especially true if, the, if you're a company that's based around a particular IP. Uh, yes. Where there, there are there are lots of different ways to get that IP to uh, to the table. So I'm actually writing a graphic novel with a friend at the moment, set in the Drowned Earth universe. Uh, and again, that's just a, a sort of way to way to uh, introduce the ideas to a completely different, like non-gamer audience. But no doubt, a bunch of the gamers will be interested in that as well. Yeah, you'll get both sides, right? You'll have players that'll go, ooh, I want to read about this because I love this game so much, but you also have that potential of someone who has never played a minis game going, oh, that's interesting. I mean, one of the best things that I think inadvertently or, or by design that Games Workshop did is when they started putting their IP out into the video game world. Yeah. I was amazed how many people were video game players that found miniature games because they played a 40K video game. And then yeah. they then they found out about the models afterwards. So that's interesting. So, gentlemen, I got to tell you, this this went I wasn't I had an idea of how this conversation was going to go. I've been thinking about it for several days before recording. And this what happened is, is kind of what I expected, which is we kind of sharpened the pencil a little bit. But I think that we also, you know, talked about a, a broad spectrum of things. So to close things out, I'd like for each of you um, in your own mind to kind of summarize where we were at the beginning of this conversation versus now. So, James, uh, Doxy, in your mind, like, have we in any way uh, met the promise that I made at the beginning of the show? Do you think that we have um, clarified what competitive versus casual is? Um, I, I think we've certainly explored the topic. Um, and I think that's as much as anyone can do, because I, I don't think there's, uh, I'm not sure there's, I think it's one of these many questions you have without a right answer. I certainly spent less time insulting casual players than I was expecting to. So uh, <laughs> I, I got a bit, uh, <laughs> I got a bit relatively unscathed there. So I'm not, not too concerned about opening Twitter. Well, it's not too late. I mean, you, guys, you want to throw out there. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, I, I, I could, I, I could go, go for a couple. I mean, I think the, the, the thing I would say, um, the number of casual players I encounter that aren't casual, I'm always wary of someone who tells me they're a casual player versus a narrative player or a sort of something else. I sort of, the, the two, the two I, I enjoy encountering are the casual player who has literally the best net list possible for the fluff. That is my <laughs> most hated player profile. And, I, and I, I can think of several of them. I used to be very active in the Lord of the Rings SPG uh, community before uh, before Games Workshop picked it or sort of toward, before and then slightly towards the end, uh, the beginning of when they started to pick up interest again. And that was a community, the tournament-based community in particular, which started off being filled with people who were, you know, um, very fluffy gamers who took very fluffy lists. And unfortunately, this is something we also uh, didn't touch on the, the, that I thought about. X-Wing is another example of this. So companies who take on particular IPs, please stop designing games that encourage the most disgustingly unthematic lists <laughs> when they're competitive. You know, Nobody wants to see dwarves with a whole load of woes spearmen behind them. Um, but yeah, there, there were a whole bunch of guys who were like, oh yes, I'm in this because I love Lord of the Rings and, the, and just the crack and the fun of rolling the dice and then they are trying to smash your face. Oh, really hard. <laughs> the, the other one I particularly 
the other one I particularly enjoy, sorry, Craig, the other one I particularly enjoy is the, um, is the I'm just here to have fun uh, and a, for a casual game. So the fact that I beat you means I'm so much better a gamer than you are. <laughs> my... there's, there's a really old joke that I love telling, which is fantastic. It's, I think it's fantastic anyway, which is uh, talk about the idea of like a thematic list that's brought to a tournament, which someone goes, oh, I've got a really highly thematic list. And you're looking at it going, you, you literally, you have a gun line. It's just artillery and cannons. What, what is it? Oh yeah, the theme is speed. Bullets fly really, really fast. <laughs> um, so... Yeah. Um... <laughs> I was once asked by somebody at an X-wing tournament whether whether you could take. Uh, um, oh no, I can't remember. Basically, there were two instances of Luke. Is there a version of, of a YT uh, twenty one hundred where that you can take Luke as a pilot? And he's like, and can I put Luke as a gunner as well? Like, what, what, what? His, his twin brother? What are you talking about? I mean, you, the fact that you need to ask the question, you should go and look at yourself in the mirror. I, I mean, rules lawyering is another topic um, for another day. But I did, I did particularly with, with my newfound interest in forty k. I did, in, you know, you do encounter some some particular specimens, and I, there was somebody the other day arguing that um, that basically because because some of the models are so ludicrously large, there's a rule that says if you can't fit the model in your deployment zone, and something's gone horribly wrong at that point anyway, it can't do anything on the first turn. It just sits there, can't do anything on the first turn. And so when we're seriously trying to argue that because deployment zones are defined in two dimensions and all models are three dimensional, oh. nothing can do it. You know, nothing can do anything <laughs> on the first turn. And you, you just go, have a word. I, I think word with yourself. I think my favorite ever War Machine rules question was about telekinesis, which was a very simple spell, which was you hit the model and you can move it two inches. And the rules question was, can I move it two inches up so that it takes fall damage? Um, I, I was like, <laughs> pro points for like thinking about that. Point, but also, yeah, but also no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things one of the things I was expecting to say as part of the podcast and didn't is there's no wrong way to have fun, right? Like there is no, there is no, you know, whatever, what what consulting adults do around a wargaming table is their own business, and and you know, and, and and more power to them. However, they choose to enjoy themselves. I, I think I probably reserve the one exception for that is the person who has fun by making the rules seem more broken than they are on the internet. Um, for their own amusement and I, I think that's probably the one invalid way of having fun with wargaming like do that on your own and laugh on your own about how clever you are you don't need to confuse new players with that on the internet so as we i gotta throw in my specimen so we we, we heard everybody else's you, you know you want to know who i hate the most um is the person who tells you about the game that they don't play um and <laughs> Every game has it. So they, you know, somebody who says, you know, uh, boy, you know, this newest release, I just read, you know, this newest faction that came out. It's all broken. It's all, this is garbage. This is all broken. Well, have, have you played them yet? Uh, no, no, no. Have, have you played against them yet? No, no, but it's, it's terrible. It's broken. It, 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 it's shocking how many people uh, think they know how games are designed and how games are played when they don't do either. There's another type of player like that, which is one that, that does upset me a little bit, actually, which is the players that have decided, I don't like this game anymore. I'm going to go and play something oh. else. And who stay in all of the social groups just to crap on everyone else having a good time. Like, if I've stopped playing a game, I will leave the social groups for it. I will leave the Facebook groups. I will be like, cool, I, I, you, I don't enjoy this anymore. You're still having fun with it. Please go go wild, and I'm not going to stand in your way. But the people that sit around and go, I don't like the fun that you're having. Like, right. why? Mm -hmm. 
Why are you still here? Just leave. I need to validate my decision by making you all feel bad. Yep. I mean, it's so much of edition change angst, isn't it? It's like whenever a new edition comes out for something, um, you get this sort of people have to because they can't just coast playing it anymore. They decide, oh, I've got to, you know, you've got to reevaluate whether I want to invest a load more energy in learning the new edition, and rather and. You know, people for quite valid reasons aren't at that point in their lives where they can do that. And it's like, so now I need to justify why this game is objectively bad so I can walk away rather than just say, (laughs) this is not for me anymore. This is for other people to enjoy. No, it's it's very true. And, and, you know, that happened to me. uh, Well, it didn't happen to me, but I I left Guild Ball, right? Um, I played Guild Ball for two years and loved Guild Ball, like loved it. It saved me. It saved me as a gamer. And it it made me realize that I liked what I liked about games. Um, But what ended up happening, and Jamie talked about it or touched on it a little bit, is um, I ended up solving it. And when I it, when that happened, I didn't enjoy playing that much anymore. And I found Malifaux, which wasn't solvable because um, it's a different game. And, and, and then I migrated from Guild Ball to Malifaux. But when I did, I left all the Guild Ball forums I was on. I left all the Guild Ball Facebook that was on. But any time the Guild Ball came up. All I do, all I had was compliments for the game because it was a great game, and I was I, I consider myself adult enough to go. You can still you can be a great game even if I don't enjoy playing you anymore. That doesn't mean that you're a bad game. Um, and it, it, we should it'd be nice to see to see more of that. Uh, that's that's absolutely for sure. James, do you think that we have um, uh, Baldwin? Do you think we've answered any questions today? Yeah, well, I think I think we've defined the terms a lot more and and, and possibly dispelled some myths. Uh, and I think the biggest myth is is that you know that there's this kind of dichotomy, a hard line um, between people who fall into either one category or the other, and, that, and that's clearly not true. And yeah. people can enjoy games for more than one reason at the same time and still play something um, very competitively. And I also think some some rare and precious uh, people have the ability to switch it on and switch it off and and play one game completely competitively uh and another game uh you know they don't take that attitude um to the table and don't take it nearly as seriously um and so manage to operate in two different ways to satisfy their different mood or you know um that sort of thing um and yeah, I think I, I think uh, the, the point I'd like to make again is just, you know, what we were talking about to begin with, just about that kind of social gamer contract where yeah. we would all, regardless of the reason why we play games, we would all play happier and better games if we took more time to remember that we're responsible for the fun of our opponent, and not just our own fun. Uh, you're preaching the gospel, my friend, preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, Perkins, what, what, what questions have we answered? I think what we've what we've done is we've kind of given I don't necessarily about answering the, the questions so much as we've given people a decent list of do's and don'ts, um, which I think is is extremely valuable and and useful time spent. Like people going, I I I making people aware that if they weren't before, if they listen to the podcast, that they now know the social contract is important. They understand the hopefully they do understand that the enjoyment of their opponent is important, and we've given them some useful tools, arming them in in the way that they can go about doing that. Like I mentioned before about going to the table with someone I've never met, asking the question kind of if i it's almost technically it's a little bit arrogant to go i recognize i'm a good player so i'm going to modify myself to another person but also it's it's fine because what that the intent of that is good the intent of that is to go i want to make sure we together have a really good experience and that's ultimately why we're here so yeah i I think this has been time well spent i don't necessarily know if we've answered a ton of questions but we have definitely informed people a lot and given people useful tools to go and have better experiences playing games 
Yeah, and I didn't anticipate what we would, but I think we did do a good job of 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 um, clarifying a lot of points, and also. I think we ended up doing what I hoped would happen, which is talk about the gaps between the basic question, because it's a lot more complicated than the basic question. And there's a lot of things that are more important than even the basic question was. But framing it in the basic question allowed us, I think, to have that discussion. Um, Mr. Doxy, do you have any shout outs or plugs you want to put out there? Um, n- not especially. I suppose the, um, you know, be- being the being the non-game designer, um, I-, I don't have anything um, particularly to sell you. I would just shout out to my um to my friendly local gaming store, Leodis Games. Um, if you're looking for Malifaux, if you're looking for Games Workshop products or Steamforge, pro- Steamforge products in the UK, um, they're really fantastic. Um, so check Neil out at Leodis Games. <laughs> Neil's a good guy. Um, I've interacted with him a few times, uh, so that, that's a great shout out. Mr. Baldwin, I would imagine you have some plugs. Well, actually, we just launched uh, uh, our December releases uh, today, but that's uh, mostly uh, of interest to people who have um, who've who've already play uh, the Drowned Earth. But if uh, you are interested in looking uh, on our Kickstarter page, uh, so in fact, you can go to Alia Chronicles backerkit.com uh you can grab yourself a pre-order um so that's u-l-a-y-a chronicles dot backerkit.com um it's good stuff it did uh, pretty well at kickstarter looking forward to getting it out to people uh sometime around june next year very exciting and, and i gotta tell you uh uh, James, the reason that I had you on the podcast the first time is because there's a there's a uh, a group of games that that are out there that I you know have, talking to people from all over the world about tabletop gaming there was there's a handful of games that always seem to come up come up in the conversation come up in um, you know the, the between the break conversations that uh, great games that more people need to be playing and hands down Drowned Earth was one of them that people kept bringing up noting as far as design points and things like that and that's what first led me to you know to uh shake hands with you and have you on the show um so those of you listening um make sure you explore it um because it's it's very very interesting i have um i have yet to play it um james but um boy i read the rules and watched a couple of things uh, videos on on the net and it is uh you don't you don't oversell it um it is exactly the way you uh, presented it here and you presented in uh, the drowned earth podcast we did mr perkins what would you like to plug so firstly uh myself uh, no, no. Firstly, uh, if, you, if you use Twitter, you can follow me uh, at Jamie Perkins. Uh, also, if you're a fan of Descent style games, if you're a fan of Gloomhaven style games, go and take a look at Bardfung, which is on Kickstarter right now. Uh, I don't know how soon this podcast is going to come out, so it might also be going late pledge for, for Bardfung, but go and take a look at that game because it does some very interesting things. Uh, well, gentlemen, I really appreciate it, and I look forward to having all three of you on the show again. And for those of you that stuck around to the end and are still listening, I appreciate it. Take care. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. 
Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Twitch so you don't miss uh, the avalanche of content we create. Links are in the show notes. Be sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest in gaming apparel and gear. There you'll also find the latest information for the U.S. Faux Tour. Find out where you rank in your conference or even in the entire United States. Get those models built, painted, and ready so we can see you at the next U.S. Faux Tour Masters event. Please take a moment to write a review of this pod on your favorite platform. Rating and reviewing helps us find more listeners almost as cool as you are. Be sure to share this feed with all of your friends who love tabletop gaming. Thanks for listening. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Um, I'm going to combine these last two things. So I'm going to dip into the last one and we're just going to kill a break. Um, Because I I feel like we've covered a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Jamie, we lose lose (laughs) you? No, sorry, I'm just fidgeting. Just getting myself comfortable. (laughs) I'm not at a desk this evening. I'm just sat on a a, a bed. So I'm just making sure. (laughs) Yeah, no, I am still here. Sorry. All right. I'm genuinely amazed I've not been attacked by a cat yet. Um, yeah, I can hear mine crying outside to be fed, but um, <laughs> if, I, if I let her in, it'll be a nightmare. She'll be up in the screen. That's funny. <laughs> All right. I don't, I'm trying to think if I want to tip this off. Um, I might start with you, Baldwin, on this because I think that uh, you're, and I'm probably going to build off your idea of the denial um, as kind of a starting point for this conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Right. So, Doxy. I had a question and I forgot it. Um, and as I was listening to the end, um, what was I going to ask you? Um, okay, I've got it. So, Doxy, I'm going to, I'm going to. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers. Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.